My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm the host for Ocean Currents. Uh, this show comes to you once a month on KWMR, and we talk about all topics about the ocean, uh, sometimes ocean exploration, natural history, um, sometimes focusing on our national marine sanctuaries right here off the coast of Point Reyes outside the Golden Gate of San Francisco. And today we're actually going to be going into a little bit of history, talking about the Farallon, Farallon Islands and some of the human history of those beautiful islands that are just offshore. Most of the time we just get little glimpses of them as the fog lifts, and they're very magical and mystical and host to so many types of animals but there are actually quite a few humans that lived there in the past, so it'll be really interesting to hear about that. Um, we'll be talking with Peter White. This is a pre-recorded interview. I was able to talk with Peter a few weeks ago, and he is the author of uh, The Farallon Islands, Sentinels of the Golden Gate, and it's a great book highlighting the, the human history of the Farallon Islands. So stay with us to catch this show. You're listening to KWMR 90.5 FM in Point Reyes Station, 89.7 in Bolinas. Just 26 miles west of San Francisco, the Farallon Islands are resting refuge to several species of seabirds, marine mammals, migratory songbirds, intertidal invertebrates, and algae. What most folks don't know is that the islands have a tremendous human history as well. Despite its remote location, harsh living conditions, it has been occupied by humans for over a hundred years and has endured a harsh and lively history. Today I'm talking with Peter White. He is the author of The Farallon Islands, Sentinels of the Golden Gate, published in 1995. Peter researched the human occupation and history on the islands, which is quite varied and diverse. So welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining me on Ocean Currents. Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. Can you tell me how you first got interested in the Farallon Islands and what moved you to write this book? Well, I, uh, my hobby and my interest is natural history and wildlife. And so this led me to volunteer to work on the islands. And uh, I worked as an assistant to the biologist there. And while I was there, I noticed old structures, old foundations. And I became curious about them. And so uh, I started a research project to find out as much as I could about the people who had gone before. And uh, this project lasted uh, 10 or 15 years or so. It was sort of done in fits and starts. And when I, when I was through, I uh, wrote the book just as a summary of what I'd learned. Where did you find a lot of your resources for your research? A lot of the resources were in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., also in Bancroft Library and the Federal Records Center in uh, San Bruno. These weren't the only places, but these were the places were, that were most fruitful. How about we start with just a general description of the islands. Um, where are they, the size of them, some of the terrain, what it's like. Can you give us a little description? There are two groups of Farallons, the southern group and the North Farallon Islands. And between these two groups is one small island known as Middle Farallons. And the southern Farallons consist of two islands, Southeast Farallon Island and Maintop Island. And these two islands of the southern Farallons are separated by a very narrow surge channel called the Jordan. And altogether, the southern Farallons consist of 120 acres of very rugged terrain. And eight miles to the north are the North Islands, and the North Islands are really 
four great rocks that come up out of the ocean to heights of 78 to 112 feet. The Farallons are granite. They're really the tops of an underwater ridgeline that runs roughly parallel to the coast. And the South Farallons are 27 miles from the Golden Gate as measured from Point Bonita. Another way of looking at it is they're 30 and one-half miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. And the North Islands are 18 miles southwest of Point Reyes. Um, some of the features on the island are named after its historical occupants, such as Murr Bridge, which is a large arch that's quite prominent, named after the common myrrh. Are there other features named as such after the occupants? Well, the the names of the features on the island were given by two groups. The first group would be the lighthouse keepers, and the second group, the biologists. The light keepers tended to name things based on what they looked like. For instance, finger rock or Indian head. One of the prominences on the east side of the island is Schubert Point, and that was named after William Schubert, who was the chairman of the Lighthouse Board. When the biologists came, they adopted some of the light keepers' names, but they tended to give names that uh, related to their study subjects, such as Moranga Bay, Moranga being the scientific name for elephant seal, or Foca Ali, Foca being the uh, scientific name for harbor seal or muscle flat. How did we learn about a lot of these early occupants? Do we know if Native Americans used the islands? In your book, actually, you talk about Island of the Dead, an aboriginal term for the spirit gathering in the West. But it, well, I wasn't really clear if the islands represented that to other Native Americans. What do we know about the, the time out there? Well, there's no indication that the local Indians ever lived on or visited the islands. Now, they did have boats, but these boats were made from bundles of reeds, and they were suitable for quiet inshore waters, but not suitable for traveling offshore. There were uh, some interesting artifacts found in a 1949 archaeological dig uh, on southeast Farallon, and they found projectile points associated with the Yurok Indians and also uh, Indians from uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. Now, these Indians from Vancouver Island had large dugout canoes and could make extended trips, extended voyages. And uh, so it's possible that they came down to the California coast. The Yurok Indians, however, are pretty much confined, were pretty much confined to their area around the Klamath River. So the question is, how did these artifacts get to the islands? Mm -hmm. And... Um, the most likely explana explanation is that they were embedded in the bodies of marine mammals by hunters, and these mammals were wounded, escaped, and subsequently died on the Farallons. Now, as far as the Islands of the Dead is concerned, <clears throat> there was an ethnologist, Stephen Powers, who studied the California Indians in the late 19th century. And he described the belief of the local Indians being that after they died, their body or souls would go across the waters to the islands of the dead where the dead Indians would um, would live or inhabit. And uh, writers uh, took this idea that, uh, that Stephen Powers had and then associated the Farallons with this myth. And whether this is correct or not is really uncertain. Interesting. Is is this term, this uh, idea of the Island of the Dead, something that was also familiar down in the Southern California area with the Channel Islands? I don't know. 
Yeah, it's something interesting. It'll be interesting to look about. Well, then we start to get a little bit more information, and it seems like the next period where the English, Spaniards, and Russians each taking a role in exploring the west coast of California. How did each of these groups come to find and explore the Farallon Islands? Well, first the Spanish, of course, were the first Europeans to see the islands. The, probably the first uh, explorer to see them was... Um, Cabrillo, and Cabrillo sailed up as far as Point Reyes in 1542. However, he never mentioned the islands. The first mention of the islands was by Sebastian Cermeño in 1592. And Cermeño was a um, captain of a Manila galleon that was wrecked at Point Reyes. And he took a small boat and his crew and returned to Mexico in it. And he mentioned passing the Farallons. The first time the Farallons were put on a map was by a, a Spanish explorer, Sebastian Vizcano. And Vizcano was given the job of charting the waters along the California coast. And in 1603, he made a map that showed the Farallons and the, the North Farallons, the South Farallons and the North Farallons. Now, did he, was he the one who named it... The island of St. James, or did he name it the Farallons? Vizcano named the islands Islio Hendido. That was, he named the southern islands Islio Hendido, Hendido meaning cleft or crannied. The north islands he called Brothers, Freyas. The uh, name Saint, uh, Islands of St. James was given by Sir Francis Drake. Sir Francis Drake visited the Farallons in 1579. He stopped there one day after he left the California coast. And Sir Francis Drake's reason for visiting the islands was to take on seals to provision his ship. And when Drake or one of his crew members stepped ashore, he was the first European to set foot in what is now the city of San Francisco because the islands are within the city limit. These folks were probably on huge, bulky ships. How did they get on and off these islands that are so rugged and, and there's no landing, really. It's pretty difficult to get on and off. Are there any thoughts or theories of how they get on, got on and off the islands? Well, I, we don't know for sure, but it's probable that what they did is they anchored a little ways off the island and took a small boat into, uh, into the shore. And like you say, they had to scramble over rocks to get onto them. So what was the next period of history like? Uh, we had a, a lot of Spanish exploration happening. Um, there's also a period of the fur hunters coming out to the islands. How did the New Englanders know about the Farallon Islands? And, and Captain Cook's last voyage was in 1776 to 1778. And he had an American crew member, a, mo- a man by the name of John Ledger. And what happened was that... Uh, the Cook's crew members found that uh, the sea otter skins were highly prized by the Chinese. And so John Ledyard, when he came back to New England, he told about getting fabulous prices for sea otter skins. And so this uh, encouraged New Englanders to go around the Horn to hunt for sea otters along the California coast. And they would uh, take the skins to China, where they'd sell them at very high prices. And in 1807, one of these otter-hunting ships, a ship called the O'Kane, was going from Alaska to Baja, California. 
and the captain of the O'Kane decided to stop at the Farallons to see what was there. And the captain reported a large number of fur and hair seals. But since the O'Kane was primary, primarily interested in otters, he left the next day. The captain left the next day. <laughs> However, three years later, that ship O'Kane stopped, came back, came back to the Farallons, this time accompanied by four other ships. And this time, these five ships put hunting parties on the islands to hunt for fur seals. Now, the, um, the fur seals weren't nearly as valuable as the sea otter, but it was much easier to hunt the fur seal because you could herd a bunch of them together and kill many all at one time, whereas it took several skilled men to hunt one sea otter. So in a uh, 26-month period from 1810 to 1812, these five ships, all from Boston, killed more than 150,000 fur seals wow. and took the uh, skins to China where they sold them for $2.50 apiece. Oh, my gosh. Is there any rec records from your research about how abundant sea otters were around the Farallon Islands or even around along the, this part of the California coast? I mean, this is probably the period that really wiped them out here, but curious if there were some sort of records of how abundant they were here. Well, there's there's no primary source that really uh, indicates that there were sea otters around the Farallons. Sea otters were not hunted there. Mm -hmm. Some people believe that they were, and this is based on, I think, number one, speculation, and number two, some mistranslation of Russian documents. It is possible, however, that... that um, Aleut hunters, these were hunters that hunted for the Russians during the Russian period, left from the Farallons and went into San Francisco Bay to hunt sea otters. Mm -hmm. Along the coast as well, probably. And along the coast. A lot right. of urchins. And now, how did the uh, New England hunters overlap with the Russians that came down and, and set up a settlement along the Sonoma coast? How did they overlap and did they team up together, or were they competitors? Well, they they had a competitive uh, relationship and a cooperative relationship. The New England ships that came to uh, California, many of them would go up to Alaska and take on Aleut hunters because the Russians had the hunters and the um, New England men had the ships, and so they could combine to hunt the otter. By the time that... Uh, the ship stopped at the Farallons to hunt fur seal. This cooperation was no longer in effect. And the hunters on the Farallons were mostly Hawaiian Islanders. They, this, these ships had picked up Hawaiian Islanders before they had gone to the, to the mm. islands. Now, the Russians occupied Fort Ross from 1812 to 1841. And during part of this period, probably 1817 to 1838, they maintained a outpost, a hunting outpost on, on the Farallons. And uh, the outpost consisted of one or two Russian overseers and a number of Aleut or Kodiak Indians. These are Indians that the Russians brought down with them from, from Alaska. And the purpose of this outpost was primarily to kill sea lions. They had salt and jerk the meat and send it back to Fort Ross at food, as food. And they also collected... Uh, uh, bird eggs and um, bird feathers, which they would use. Hmm. Now, the um, the Russians sometimes 
sent out native California Indians. And the native California Indians that they sent out were most often Cachea Pomo, which was the Indians around Fort Ross. But these Indians were sent out against their will. They were sent out as to serve on the Farallones at hard labor as punishment for violating Russian rules. In 1826, it was reported that of the 18 men and women on the island, six were native California Indians serving sentences. Wow. And they probably were providing food for the other people on the islands as well, being um, strong hunter-gatherers as far as like the inner tidal and, and gathering food. Well, it's it's interesting that there are so many different ethnic groups. There's the Aleuts, the Kodiaks, the, the native Californians, the Russians. So it must have been uh, an interesting uh, interaction with all these different cultural Yeah, groups. I wonder how they communicated. So um, with these different periods of time, I'm assuming this is about when we have all these different people from the land and different countries all coming out to the islands, this possibly could have been a vector for bringing introduced species along to the Farallon Islands. Do we have a, a timeline of when introduced species started showing up there? Well, we really don't. Um, the uh, the introduced mammals uh, on the island were rabbits and um, and mice. And uh, the rabbits were eradicated in 1976, and the mice are are still there, but um, the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has plans to eradicate mm-hmm. them. So, okay, we've got a lot of pe- people hunting mammals out there, and there was a pretty much, they pretty much wiped out the fur seals, and the Russians started to retreat. What happened? Were the islands relatively free of human occupation at that time, or do we know what happened once they started? Once the fur seals were determined to be pretty much hunted out. Well, we don't know when the last Boston ship visited the islands to hunt for fur seal, and and the Russians probably left in 1838, and from then till of, of the late 1840s. There was probably nobody that really went to the Farallones. But in the 1850s, the gold rush was on. Mm-hmm. There was a great influx of population into San Francisco and California. And at the same time, there wasn't an agricultural industry to support these people. There weren't, for an example, chicken farms, so chicken eggs were generally not available. But out on the Farallones, there was a bird that that breeds there, it's the the common myrrh. And the myrrh lays an egg about twice the size of a chicken egg, and by all accounts, every bit is good. So individuals and groups would go out to the Farallons, gather myrrh eggs for sale in uh, San Francisco. And in 1851, six men formed a stock company called the Pacific Egg Company. And the purpose of the company was to gather myrrh eggs for sale on the mainland. And every year at the beginning of the egg-laying season, which was in May, 10 to 20 men would land on the island. These men were known as egg pickers. And they would stay gathering eggs until July when the uh, egg-laying stopped. The company had buildings on the island. They had a um, two-story wood frame building with a, um, a kitchen and dining hall downstairs. 
and sleeping room upstairs. They, even though they only occupied the islands during the nesting season, they did have a caretaker who would stay on the island year-round. For many years, this was a man by the name of Luffwood Smith, and all accounts, he was sort of a hermit type of guy. And um, when the, uh, the way they would conduct their business is that the company had the island sectioned off into particular discrete picking areas. And when the men first went into a picking area, they'd smash every egg they could find. That way they could be assured that when they returned to the same area the next day that every egg gathered would be fresh. Would, would, would it still work the same way if they had just removed an egg? or they had to? I mean, I'm surprised they smashed them versus actually using the egg and knowing that the bird might reproduce. Well, they would smash the egg because they, they only wanted to, um, to gather fresh eggs. They didn't want any eggs that oh, had I see. embryos. So they didn't know how old they were. They didn't know how old they were. So this was just one company at the very beginning with the, the myrrh eggs and, and hunting for eggs? Yes, it was, there was only one company, and the company ex- claimed exclusive rights to the island. However, not everybody agreed that they had exclusive rights. And other groups would come out to the islands, and they would try to dispossess the company, and they'd do this by force of arms. So there were battles on the island over the eggs. And the principal battle occurred in 1863. On June 4th, there were three boats that came out to the islands. There were 27 men. They were heavily armed. They even had a cannon. Wow. And the next day, they attempted to land. And this resulted in a 20-minute gun battle because the egg company decided to defend themselves. There were two men shot and killed, and a number were wounded. Well, the egg company managed to drive off these um, these invaders and maintain their position. But then they fell into uh, conflict with the government, and the government had established a lighthouse on the island. And the lightkeepers claimed that the egg company and their activities were interfering with the um, operation of the lighthouse. Now, the egg company claimed, for their part, that the lightkeepers were stealing company property when they were gathering eggs for their own use. So the lightkeepers and their families were gathering mm. eggs for their own use. And so this was resolved in 1881 when the government landed a group of soldiers on the island and evicted the egg company at gunpoint. This wasn't the end of commercial egg gathering, though, because now that the egg company was out of the way, the lightkeepers, in cooperation with some fishermen, went into the egg business. And they gathered eggs commercially and uh, sold them in San Francisco until 1896. In 1896, the American Ornithological Union, the California Academy of Sciences, and the Audubon Society of the Pacific, which is now known as the Golden Gate Audubon Society, they pressured the U.S. Lighthouse Service to enforce their own rules <laughs> against commercial egg gathering. And so the, the Lighthouse Service uh, agreed with them and complied and put an end to commercial egg gathering. Interesting. How about um, as far as when they were egg gathering, um, was there, it seems there's a lot of different bird life going on there. Was there disturbance to some of the other smaller alcid birds like auklets and, and puffins and... Um, 
other birds out there that are small nesters like that? Do you think there was much disturbance at that time? I do think there was there was a lot of disturbance because these uh, people that were out there had no sense of uh, conservation. They just would trample over uh, auklet burrows and so forth. And it wasn't only the myrrh eggs that were gathered. They gathered the eggs of the western gull uh, before uh, um, before they would take the myrrh eggs, or put it this way, the western gulls laid their eggs first. They'd gather those eggs and uh, sell those for food. Now, the, the western gull eggs were not as uh, large as the myrrh egg, and also they had a thinner shell, so they're harder to handle, but these eggs were gathered. And also the western gulls would compete for the myrrh eggs on the island, so they would, any western gull egg that was not gathered, they would uh, try to smash to reduce the gull population. They also would gather, this is the light keepers, would gather the eggs of the ashy storm petrel and the leachy storm petrel. Mm. And these were prized by egg collectors, oologists. And so there was a business in, in this too. So there was a lot of disturbance. The one thing that they did learn, however, is that as far as the puffin goes, you shouldn't reach into a puffin burrow to look for an egg because the puffins had very strong jaws. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good warning. Well, I want to let listeners know that they're talk, uh, listening to Peter White, and he's the author of The Farallon Islands, Sentinels of the Golden Gate. We're talking about the human history on the Farallon Islands, and we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. talking with Peter White, author of The Farallon Islands, Sentinels of the Golden Gate, and we're talking about the human history on the Farallon Islands. Uh, there's an incredible history back in the day, and Peter has done a, quite a bit of research and is sharing his stories with us today. So thanks for staying with us, Peter. We were just talking about the egg egging wars, that period on the islands where there are lots of eggs being gathered and sold during the gold rush period. Um, there is also a, a strong effort to build safer maritime passage along the coast as there was more and more ships coming in and out and lighthouses were being built up and down the coast. When was the first lighthouse built on the Farallon Islands? Well, the, the uh, first lighthouse was built in uh, 1853 by a Baltimore construction company. The company was Gibbons and Kelly. And Gibbons and Kelly was under contract to build a lighthouse and also keeper's quarters on the island. And uh, the keeper's quarters were a story-and-a-half house with a uh, parlor downstairs and uh, uh, sleeping rooms upstairs and a kitchen downstairs. And this was made, this building was later known as Stonehouse because of its very solid construction. And it was made from rock quarried on the island. And unfortunately, Stonehouse was torn down in 1969. There were actually two lighthouses built on the islands. And the first one was completed in August 1853. It was completed in every respect but one. They did not have the Fresnel lens, the lens that used to, to uh, concentrate the light. The lens was being manufactured in France. 
So the lighthouse stood dark and unused for 18 months, and finally the lens arrived. It was in 73 crates, and the crates <laughs> were wrestled ashore, taken up to the top of the hill, oh my gosh. opened up, and uh, assembly of the uh, of the of the lens began, even though the instructions didn't come with the uh, with the uh, lens. It was soon apparent that the first lighthouse, the uh, a lighthouse that had never shown a light, was too small for the lens, and so there was nothing to do but to tear down the first lighthouse and build a second lighthouse. The second lighthouse was completed in 1855 and showed light for the first time on January 1st, 1856. The lighthouse was a Fresnel lens, which is the light is put out by uh, oil, the, the flame going, and then generated out with the Fresnel lens. How about sound? A lot of lighthouses now have like a whistle or um, some type of loud horn. Did they have anything, any type of technology then for have, uh, signaling to, to ships in the fog? Yes, they had a, a fog signal. And in 1880, a uh, steam-operated coal-fired fog signal was built, and it served on the island for over 40 years. And this was one of five fog signals that were on the island. And the fog signals were discontinued in 1976 because of advances in navigational techniques, radar, and so forth. But the 19, the 1880 correction, 1880 fog signal wasn't the first fog signal uh, on the islands. On the Marine Terrace, there's a hole in the ground, and beneath that hole is a sea cave. And as the waves rush into the sea cave, air is expelled out of the hole. It's what is commonly known as a blowhole. And in 1858, the lighthouse engineers decided to use this to their advantage. So what they did is they bricked up the hole to a very small opening, and they put a locomotive whistle on top. <laughs> and so as the waves rushed into the cave, it would blow the locomotive whistle. Well, this contraption had certain disadvantages. For one thing... Uh, it didn't work very well in calm weather, and so it might be foggy and calm, and the thing wasn't working well. On the other hand, it blared incessantly if it was rough, so it may be windy and rough, but clear when it wasn't needed, and it would be blaring away. So finally, uh, this thing was destroyed in a storm in uh, 1875. Uh, it was blown right off the, the whistle was blown right off the top of the hole. Ingenious, though. Very good technology using what you got. How about the lighthouse keepers? How did they get lighthouse keepers out there? It probably wasn't a very attractive post for folks. Right. Well, when the uh, that was one of the first problems that the authorities had was, was getting men to go out and serve as lighthouse keepers. Now, the salaries for lighthouse keepers were set by Congress, and Congress used a scale that was appropriate for the East Coast. But here in San Francisco... There were big bucks being made because of the gold rush, and the amounts being offered lighthouse keepers was less than what domestic service were, servants were being offered. And so the local authorities pressed Congress to raise the salary of the keepers on the Farallons and other West Coast stations enough to entice men to go out to the islands. And so Congress agreed with them and did this. Now, the um, the lighthouse station on the Farallons was one of the most isolated lighthouse stations in the service. But because it was isolated, didn't mean that 
life was always boring. There were, for instance, the shipwrecks. And in these shipwrecks, sometimes the keepers were heroes. For instance, in 1868, keeper Jacob Tasker rode from the South Fairlands to the North Islands to rescue uh, crew members from the ship Morning Light, which had struck the North Islands and sunk. Wow. In 1871, an assistant keeper by the name of Frank Roper was uh, drowned attempting to rescue shipwrecked sailors. But sometimes the light keepers weren't so heroic. For instance, in 1882, a ship called the Bremen struck the islands in a fog, and it struck right at the fog signal, <laughs> and the signal wasn't in operation, and the keepers were brought up on charges of negligence. Mm. And uh, in 1872, the entire force of keepers was dismissed when it was found that they were taking oil intended for the light and selling it in San Francisco for their own profit. But mostly, life was um, quiet, family-oriented. One of the important days in the life of the keepers was boat day, and this is when the tender came out bringing uh, supplies and news of the outside world. In the early days, boat days was once every three months. In later years, it was once every two weeks. So they also had families with them out there. How many how many people would be out there during the lighthouse keeper time? There were there were four keepers, and generally there were four families. Of course, it varied from from uh, uh, year to year. They at at one point there were enough children to have a school out there run by the San Francisco School District. <laughs> but being being isolated as they were, they, the keepers and their families had to be self-sufficient. And sometimes this was difficult, and it was particularly difficult in times of medical emergency. And so there were broken bones and illness. One time, all four keepers were sick, and the light was uh, kept operating only with a great deal of difficulty. In 1901, the islands experienced a diphtheria epidemic, and four of the children were seriously ill. So the keepers tried to signal passing ships for help. And finally, help did come, but not until after two of the children had died. So there was quite a bit of isolation and and ways that they had to figure out how to live and be self-sufficient in these remote islands. And it must have been so frustrating for them. So how long would they stay as uh, keepers, or did they have a say in the matter? Well, when when the keepers went to the Farallons, that was their their station, their home. And they were given periods of leave on on the mainland. But during the keeper period, the early keeper period, that was that's where they lived. That was the and and they would stay there as long as their assignment to the islands would be. Some of them were promoted off the island and um, it was just like being in a bureaucracy where you were assigned different stations. Do you think the families all worked together because of this remote isolation? Or what were the family relationships like between each other and, and the lighthouse keepers as well? Well, th- they may have worked together and gotten along. The, the, we do know, however, that they did have conflicts between them. And um, the um, these conflicts are recorded in the keeper's log and some of the official correspondence. Keepers sometimes accused each other of stealing from from each other. They accused uh, 
them of the other keepers of being drunk on duty, and they would appeal to the Lighthouse Board in far off Washington to uh, to resolve these issues. And of course, people in the, on the mainland in Washington really didn't know what was going on, and there was very little they could do about hmm. it. Are there any stories you're mentioning? Some shipwrecks that um, happened. And are there any other stories of of people coming to the islands to somewhat like pirates or wanting to check things out and see if there was anything they could get during that time? Um, well, not not pirates that I know of. There were there were of course shipwrecks. There were ten major shipwrecks on the Farallons, and by major shipwreck, uh, what I mean is an ocean going vessel that is a complete loss as a result of striking the island. In addition to these ten, there were fishing boats that were lost there and some vessels that hit the islands but were uh, only um, damaged. The first one was in 1858. The ship Lucas uh, struck the islands and sank it with the loss of 23 people. And the last one was in 1944 when a troop carrier hit the islands in May, uh, May 31st and it had 1,600 people on board. And many of these 1,600 people ended up on the uh, on the Farallons, which is probably the most people ever that had been on the island at any one time. How many people again? There were 1,600 people that were on the ship that needed to be rescued. Many of those were picked up from the ocean, but many, several hundred, ended up also on the island. Oh, wow. Now, how did they, all, with all of these shipwreck survivors, how did they eventually get back to the mainland of California? Did the... How did they signal for another, I mean, did they have to wait till the these uh, support boats would come out with supplies? No, what they would do is um, the uh, in the early days, uh, they would signal passing ships to try to take the survivors into San Francisco. That's really how they did it. Hmm. During this time, and also for prior time, there's a lot of construction of buildings that went on and, and survival mode. How did they get materials around? I mean, there's, a lot of stuff is really heavy. The islands are remote. There's no cars or anything. How did they move large objects, like building the lighthouse, for example, getting stuff all the way to the top of the hill? And was that all human labor of carrying pieces? Or No, actually, what they did is they had um, a series of uh, pack animals. They had uh, a mule, and then when he died, a donkey. The mule's name was Jack, and when Jack died, a donkey, Jerry. And finally, the last uh, mule was um, named Patty. And they they had constructed a um, narrow-gauge rail line on the island. It was uh, 3,600 feet. And it was used to move supplies from the landing to the houses, and also there was a spur that went off to the... Um, fog signal for, for to supply the fog signal with coal, and the um, the um, railroad was mule operated. The mule Patty knew that on uh, boat day meant work day for Patty. So whenever the mule would hear the tender's whistle, it would run off and hide in the rocks <laughs> until the keepers came back and uh, put her to her work. The mule died on the island in 1913. It's buried out there, and there's a tombstone oh, over the grave for Patty. right at East Landing. Interesting. So how long did the lighthouse keepers occupy the island? What time, um, 
What was the time when they were phased out? The light, the light keepers were on the island for 117 years from the time the light was um, first online until it was automated in 1972. In 1939, the, the nature of the island community changed, and that was the year that the Lighthouse Service, which was a civilian organization, was disbanded, and the nation's light keepers were taken over by the U.S. Coast Guard, which, of course, is a military organization. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Coast Guard uh, was there with, with their families until 1966. And in 1966, the, the um, nature of the community again changed, and this is when the Coast Guard decided not to maintain the families out there anymore. This is simply an economic decision, mm. and so the children and wives left the island. And then finally, uh, in 1972, the lighthouse was automated, and the last keeper of the Farallon Light, a Coast Guardman by the name of Brent Franz, left the island. Wow. So once the lighthouse keepers left the island, was there any occupation from there on on out? Well, <clears throat> three years before the... the um, Coast Guard left in 1969, the islands were made a national wildlife refuge and put under the joint administration of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Coast Guard. Now, the Fish and Wildlife Service knew, of course, that the Coast Guard would be leaving the island, and they believed that there had to be a human presence on the island. And so they contracted with the uh, Point Reyes Bird Observatory, which is a scientific research organization located in Petapluma. Mm-hmm. And under terms of the contract, the Bird Observatory is to maintain a research station on the island year-round. And so that's who's on the island today, biologists who engage in studies of marine mammals, birds, uh, sharks, and other things. How did there, there must have been some effort and some awareness about the importance of the islands for the birds and the mammals and the reason to designate it as a refuge. Was there any significant um, biological observations or work done prior to that to really designate the need for creating a refuge? The early visitors really almost all remarked on the wildlife there, the abundance of wildlife. It was just amazing when these Europeans first came there, the, the amount of, of uh, the number of birds and, and uh, marine mammals. And so <clears throat> that the, the islands were an important wildlife area was known from the very beginning. And the first designation as a preserve was done in 1909 by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He made the North Islands uh, part of Fer- and the Middle Farallon part of the Farallon Reserve. And then this was later extended, as I said, to 1969 oh. when the South Islands were included. I didn't realize there were two different time periods there for the designation of that refuge. Now, what about, in your book, you talk about some Navy radio stations and a weather station. What time were these out there, and what did they do? The, the weather station was put out there in 1902, and the, um, the weather observer had two jobs. One is to make and um, communicate weather observations, and the other was to report what ships were headed to San Francisco so merchants and other people with an interest could prepare for their arrival. 
Now, they had to communicate, of course, with the mainland. So in 1902, there was an undersea cable laid from the Farallons to uh, Drake's Bay. And later, the Weather Service used a, um, a radio. Mm-hmm. But the weather ser- station wasn't there very long. It uh, was discontinued in 1930. So the radio station was for the weather, or was that for uh, naval, naval communications? The first radio station uh, was for the weather weather I service. See. And then in 1905, the Navy established a radio station on the island. And this was a general-purpose radio station. It was to relay messages from ships at sea to the Navy stations at Yerba Buena and Mare Island. And then in 1920, there was a second radio station, Navy radio station on the island. This wasn't a, a successor to the first station. This was an addition to the first station. And the second station was a radio compass station, and it was designed as a navigational aid. And a sea captain that was in contact with a radio compass station would know its direction from him, so he could draw a directional line on his chart. And by being in contact with two or more radio compass stations at the same time, he would know that where these uh, directional lines intersected would be his position. And so this was a very important advance in a place like Northern California where fogs were common along the coast. So when the Navy radios were in operation, they had a chief radio operator and six other operators, and many of these men had their wives along. So now there were two communities on the Farallons, Mm. the light station, the light keepers and their family, and the Navy radio station with their families. Actually, they they didn't post uh, people, men with uh, children, but they did have their wives along. That's pretty interesting. As far as, what, were there any other occupants of the island at, from there on out, or was it just simply PRBO in partnership with the refuge then had the biological station from there on out? Or were there any other communities that we missed talking about this history? Uh, not really. During the, um, during the Second World War, the Navy uh, operated a... Um, what was called a, a radar beacon, and it was a special design. It would give more information than just a reflected pulse. It's what we call a transponder nowadays, very common technology. But back in those days, it was uh, a uh, new advance, and, and the fact that it was there was secret until after the, uh, the war. But we've pretty much covered uh, the communities. Since the designation of the Fish and Wildlife Service, Farallon National Wildlife Refuge, and the partnership with the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, um, what types of uh, wildlife recovery took place or habitat restoration took place with that designation? Well, once the, the, uh, the islands were left alone, where the, there was no uh, disturbance of the animals, the islands began to to heal themselves, and many of the species that had been eliminated returned. For instance, in 1972, the elephant seal, which had been eliminated from the island, returned as a breeder. Also in the same year, um, the rhinoceros auklet, which is a um, seabird, which had been eliminated from the island, returned. In 1996, the first fur seal was born on the island after many years, after many years of... um, of hunting, and in 2006, more than 90 fur seal pups were born. 
And so the islands have gone a long way in recovering and healing themselves. The mer population, these are the birds that laid the eggs that were sold in uh, San Francisco for food. The mer population had been less than 10,000 in the 1950s. In 2006, the mer population was up to 170,000. Wow, that's an amazing recovery just on their own. I can imagine there's just probably not having people trampling all over the island, just the habitat restoring itself. A lot of these birds are cavity nesters and need to have the soft ground to burrow into. So imagine that uh, birds like Cassin's auklet started to come back slowly as well. The Cassin's auklets did return, and they had a population of well over 100,000 for a while, but their population has since gone down for reasons other than, probably reasons other than uh, human disturbance. Habitat, more of the uh, oceanographic conditions and foraging, from what I understand. Now, when you had a chance to volunteer with the biologists, what type of work did you do? Well, my time on the island was in the fall, and so the research project that uh, I engaged in most was uh, monitoring the uh, land bird migration. Many land bird migrants stop at the Farallons during their their um, migration. And so my job was to to count, identify, census the birds as to species and number, and to band as many as uh, we could catch. I also helped with um, elephant seals and uh, doing other things such as taking um, water samples and weather observations and this this sort of thing. Sort of um, a spear carrier for science. Great. There's so much great research going on out there. and Hopefully I'll be able to interview some of the scientists from PRBO on a future show. But we're going to wrap it up a little bit. Is there any last thoughts about the Farallon Islands you'd want to share with listeners about your research? And um, can you tell us where your book would be available for purchase? Well, the book uh, is in some bookstores. It can be ordered through any bookstore, and it's also available on uh, online on Amazon. I know that the local bookstore at Point Reyes carries that. And, um, excuse me. The Point Reyes National Seashore Visitor Center also carries the book, The Farallon Islands, Sentinels of the Golden Gate. Peter, thanks so much for sharing your time. This is an incredible amount of information and time you've spent researching about this human history of such a remote, isolated place. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. The Farallon Islands Sentinels of the Golden Gate is really an important and a fascinating book, the only book telling the whole story of the Farallon Islands, including an absorbing and remarkable human history. Um, most San Francisco horse historians really know nothing about it, so Peter really did a lot of digging and, and brought it all to a nice compendium for people to learn about. And I think it's really important to learn from history about how to move forward in the future. We can't make better decisions for the future unless we know the past. And hearing some of the stories of how um, they you know, planned the lighthouse too small and then they had to tear it down and rebuild, those are kind of examples I think we've learned along the way as well as just treating habitats. So thanks again for joining us today on Ocean Currents, looking at this history, human history of the Farallon Islands and in the future, we'll maybe talk about some more of the natural history. So thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean.